0: let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the great gift of being the church and the gift of being able to study your holy word through Zoom. And we pray that you would bless this study of first and second Peter, that you'd bless our conversation and that we would be formed more deeply into your holy people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, now, before I actually read anything of First Peter, I do want to offer the three-minute cliff notes about uh, what you need to know going in. And the first question about it is, did the apostle Peter actually write this epistle or not? And like all things New Testament, uh, scholars are divided over that issue. Um, from what I can tell, most scholars seem to believe that First and Second Peter were written by two different people, neither of whom was the actual apostle. And the two main reasons for that is that it's really well written, it's pretty good Greek, and fishermen were not known for such exquisite Greek prose. Uh, and second, the persecution described in the letter seems a little bit more resonant with what would have happened historically after the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD. Now, do any scholars think Peter wrote 1 Peter? Absolutely. One of my favorite scholars, N.T. Wright, believes that Peter wrote 1 Peter. And certainly the evidence I just offered is not a compelling case against um, Peter actually writing this epistle. It's really the only evidence we would have. But I always like to remind people that This is a world, right, for those of you who grew up in English class and were warned against the dangers of plagiarism, this is not really the same world. And so, for instance, if we were to study scripture together or theology as a group for two or three years, and then you as a community were to get together and to summarize our conversation and my teaching and call it, you know, John's Word to St. Michael, would that make it more powerful that collectively you wrote it or less powerful? And I actually think an argument can be made that it's more powerful when a community formed by an apostle writes a letter in his name. That being said, I just want you to know that scholars kind of think of it both ways. Those who don't think Peter wrote this date the letter during the reign of Domitian in the year 8081. And so after the Gospel of Mark, but maybe before the Gospel of Luke. And so no one dates this as being really that old. It's not like this was written in the second century. This is a first century epistle when the church is young, the church is growing, and uh, people are really kind of on fire with what does it mean to be a Christian, And there's three major themes that are going to show up. And one of the reasons I chose this letter was because it's really the three themes that we've been dancing around as a group, going all the way back to our study of the book of Daniel. Um, One of them is around identity. What does it mean to be God's holy people? What does that mean? Um, Second, there's a pastoral practical element. And one of the things you'll note is that. First Peter is written to people in exile, but it's not like the Babylonian exile, they haven't been kicked out of their home, rather they are aware that there is a difference between the ethic they are called to live, and the world in which they find themselves right so Paul says something similar. This world is not our true home. We are citizens of heaven. This is not a new theme in scripture, right? So what does it mean to be in the world, but not of the world, uh, to be in exile? And then three, there's a lot of encouragement. It's a pastoral epistle in a sense. The author of first Peter knows people are struggling and he says, hang in there, right? This is hard. It's hard to be God's holy people in a hostile world. You need encouragement. You need support. And so that's also going to be a big theme of the letter. First Peter chapter one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if for now you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, honor, and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry, inquiring about the person or time that the Spirit of Christ within them indicated, when it testified in advance to the sufferings destined for Christ and the subsequent glory, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in regard to the things that have now been announced to you through those who brought you good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I'm going to pause there. And so, right off the bat, Peter identifies himself as an apostle and he is addressing the exiles. Um, These are people in Asia Minor, a collection of churches, and of course this phrase exile is meant metaphorically it's really what Stanley Hauerwas called Uh, we're resident aliens, that we live here, but this is not our home. And so the idea of being in exile, whereas whenever we studied the book of Daniel, it was a literal exile. They were away from the promised land of uh, Judea uh, and living in Babylon. Here, Babylon's more of a metaphor. The whole world's Babylon, and our true home is in heaven or the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to have our feet in this this world, but our heart and the kingdom of God. That's really what Peter's getting at by using this phrase exile. And right out off the bat, he really kind of taps into this idea of identity. Who are we? And the identity of exile is not the deepest truth. The deepest truth is that we are people and a community chosen and destined. And what I love about what follows is that it really kind of presents us with a paradox, because on the one hand, we're chosen to be obedient, right? Obedient to Jesus Christ, but then also sprinkled with his blood. And so this idea right off the bat that the Christian community is chosen to embody this new ethic, to be obedient to our Lord coupled with the understanding that we're going to fail and need forgiveness, hence the phrase sprinkled with his blood. It's a tension we're asked to carry, right? We are held to a higher ethic. We are destined for obedience. There is a real Lord with a real claim upon our life, and we are to follow that claim, but we're going to fail, We've also been sprinkled with his blood. We are a forgiven community. And so moving to verse three, there is a doxology, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? There's a new birth into a living hope. That new birth, of course, is a reference to baptism. Um, This is a baptized community, a community, again, to go to the identity question, whose old identity, An old solidarity with the world has drowned in the waters of baptism, and something new, a new creature has emerged. And what we've been given in that process is a living hope. And of course, that hope is going to be tied to what Peter will say throughout this epistle, which is that we see it in verse 5, that there is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right, this idea that Jesus is already the king of heaven and earth. He's already the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, but we still see the emperor on the throne. We still see the powers and principalities kind of controlling the show. And what Peter is reminding this community is that the salvation that God has already accomplished will be revealed in the last time, and that what we are to do is to hold on to that hope. And in fact, we're told in verse four that it's an inheritance. This is a word used by many New Testament authors. Paul uses this word. And this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And we can look at that in contrast to a world that is defiled and where everything is impermanent. And I love this phrase, pastorally speaking, that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you and protected by the power of God. This is really important for a community, verse six, suffering various trials, because whenever you're undergoing trials or just living as a human being, you feel very vulnerable. You feel very unprotected. You feel like you're going to die at any moment and that's going to be that. And so it's really important for Peter as a pastor to say, that the most precious thing about your life is being kept in heaven, and it's protected by the power of God. You don't have to worry. And of course, that hope is meant to lead to love. Verse eight, although you have not seen him, you love him. You know, this is also, I think, one of the reasons why some people place this epistle at a later date. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians references The resurrection of Jesus and how Jesus appeared to more than 500 believers at once in first Corinthians, uh, it is very, very clear that the people to whom Peter is addressing this are not eyewitnesses to the resurrection the way Peter was. And so that's just another kind of little nugget to consider for the dating of this epistle. But I love that line, although you have not seen him, you love him. The gospel of John does something similar with doubting Thomas. You know, do you believe because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. And Hebrews says something similar where uh, faith, that that faith is about not what is seen, but what we do not see. Uh, Both Hebrews and Romans say something very, very similar. The last thing I want to say before we go into some conversation is that as Peter writes about this salvation, like other New Testament authors, he references the prophets And his understanding of the prophets is that it was the spirit of Christ pointing the world to Christ. And even though this way of reading the Old Testament is a little out of fashion in today's world, uh, there's always a concern that we're going to colonize the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, It is important to name that the first Christians, the New Testament authors, whenever they studied what we would call our Old Testament, that was their scriptures. And they saw all of it as pointing to the revelation of Christ. And the author of 1 Peter certainly writes in that tradition. All right, we're going to pick back up here with verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you as holy, be holy yourselves and all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you invoke as father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile, Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart, you have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That word is the good news that was announced to you. It occurs to me in reading this that this passage actually does speak to the heart of our concern about death and and resurrection, Um, not with the technicalities we were getting into, um, but rather that this really is an epistle about hope. Uh, For the very beginning, Peter says that we've been born anew into a living hope. And then verse 13, it says, Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. We're not to really um, divide our hope and to set 80% of it, you know, on God and 20% of it on some other thing, Uh, but that all of our hope is to be set uh, on Jesus. And uh, we are to know that this God is worth hoping in. And of course, I love the way this passage ends. Uh, The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And certainly so it goes with our experience, with our body, with our life. Uh, Everything about us will wither, it will fall. uh, And like the flower and the grass, there will be a death. But, and that, that word in verse 25 is so important, but, but the word of the Lord endures forever, but you've been born into a living hope, but there's a salvation that is imperishable, kept in heaven for you, and so regardless of kind of how it all works out, I would say that uh, the impact this letter is to have upon those who study it is one of comfort and hope, but but not the sort of hope that doesn't lead to a changed life here and now, right? Because what we're told in verse 14 is that we're not to be conformed to the same desires we had prior to this new birth, prior to uh, or, or back whenever there was a time of ignorance. Paul says something similar in Romans, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here, Uh, This is really a reinterpretation of the book of Leviticus, where Mm -hmm. we are called to be holy Uh, as God is holy. So we are to be holy. And as many of you know, that Hebrew word in the Greek translation of it uh, both means set apart. And so here we are, we're exiles, but we've been set apart for something. And I think that it raises the question, what have we been set apart for? And what does it mean to live as God's holy people? We've been given some things right off the bat, right? Clearly, it means hope. Clearly, it means forgiveness. Clearly, it means obedience. But it might be worth talking together. Uh, what does that mean to you? What does it mean for you to live into this call to be holy? Because I think all of us know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean moral perfection. It doesn't mean... Um, you know, this impeccable life where we never make a mistake. It's clearly pointing to something else. And I think verse 17 points at it uh, uses this phrase, reverent fear, because uh, of what's already been written, we can rule out that reverent fear is the fear of punishment. Uh, And so I also think that we need to discuss together, what does it mean to live Uh, with a reverent fear of god what does that actually look like what does that feel like what does that um mean for us to embody that together Uh, and then the final thing i want to say uh is that doesn't really matter what book of the bible you study one way or another it is going to come back to genuine mutual love loving one another deeply from the heart verse 22 uh, there's a lot of resonance here with the new commandment in the gospel of John. I like to remind people that what makes Jesus's commandment new is not that it is a call to love, but rather that we are to love one another as we have been loved. Uh, that's what makes it new, right? The call to love is deepened. Love one another as I have loved you. And first Peter is saying something similar. We're to love one another genuinely and from the heart and so i think that whatever this call to holiness is whatever it means to live with reverent fear that it's clearly tied to this very high ethic of both hope and love that show up so prominently in this first chapter of first peter